Well, I think that is a picture of where we are right now in this country. It's a sunny day. We, we, we are here gathered together freely worshiping. We, we, don't, we don't fear persecution right now as we come together to worship. We, we, we are looked on particularly favorably here in Alabama and here in this community. We have peace as Christians, and yet we see the clouds, don't we? We see a gathering storm of persecution that's looming in our country, already beginning to affect other parts of this country. You know, in 1 Timothy 2, we are called to pray for rulers to the end that we Christians may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Spreading the gospel, worshiping Christ. We're called to pray that way. And God is pleased and has been pleased at different times and different seasons in history to answer that prayer. To give his people peace. To give his people the ability to live peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. And this is what we have largely known in our country. Yet listen to these verses. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, does, does persecution seem strange to you? Does the, does the notion that, that we may be marginalized and reviled and put down and, and even harmed, does that seem strange to you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't seem strange to us. What's strange is that that's not already happening. What's strange is that we've had this peace and freedom for so long. Persecution is not a matter of if, but when. It's not a matter of whether, but it's a matter of to which degree. There are storm clouds looming, and they are coming. And it's with that heart that I want to preach this message today. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in a series called Following the Fulfillment. This book, this gospel, is all about who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope and how we are called to follow him as his disciples. And we're in a section of Matthew called the Beatitudes, uh, the, the beginning verses of the gospel of, of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Uh, wh- what does that mean? What are the Beatitudes? Well, s- simply speaking, they're statements of God's favor. They're statements of God's grace. They all begin with this, this word blessed or blessed, and it's describing those who have been blessed by God, those who have been given grace by God, those who have favor with God. The word itself means truly happy, not, not just superficially happy, but true, unshakable happiness that's rooted in God's blessing. People who have received blessing from God, and now they are, they are happy, truly happy because of what he's done for them. And the thing about the Beatitudes is that these are not statements saying, do this and get blessed. These aren't works that we are called to do to get blessed. No, these are descriptors of those who have been blessed. These verses describe people who have been blessed by God, and this is what they look like. This this is who they are. Let's, Let's review a little bit of what we've seen. We're in our last week in the Beatitudes. Let's look at what we've seen so far. Read with me, uh, starting in verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what we've seen so far, we, we, we've seen these first seven Beatitudes, and, we, and we've seen that there's a progression to these. It's not that, that some people are poor in spirit, some are meek, some are merciful. No, these all describe all of God's people, and there's a clear progression from the beginning toward the end in this. It begins with humility. The Beatitudes begin with humility, talking about those who are poor in spirit before the Lord. Those who come to God and say, God, I have nothing before you. I don't have any righteousness before you. I don't have anything to claim. There's nothing I've done or can do to earn your favor, to earn your grace. I am just a spiritual beggar begging you for grace. And Jesus says these people have received the blessing of God. Humility before him. They, and, and then they, they mourn over their sin. Not only do we not have righteousness, we have sin that we mourn over before the Lord. And then that mourning turns to meekness. We, we humbly submit ourselves to God and say, we are your servants and, and we want to follow you. This humility then gives way to hunger, to a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We say, God, God, I'm poor in spirit. I don't have any righteousness. All I have is sin to mourn over, but I want to serve you and I'm hungry to be righteous. I want to be righteous. I want to live for you. And Jesus says that we'll be satisfied and look, that begins to work its way into our lives. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Righteousness is forming. Real inward righteousness is forming in God's people. And then this gives way to what we saw last week. Peacemakers. Peacemakers. Those who have come to God, received His blessing, living in humility, living in repentance, living in meekness, hungering for righteousness, being satisfied. Now they, their eyes are shifting outward to the world. And they're seeing that we live in a lost world. That is, that is at enmity with God, that is hostile to God, that needs reconciliation with God. And we who have discovered that peace, we want to make that peace known. We want others to know that they can have peace with God. And so we enter into the world as peacemakers. This is who believers are. This is who is blessed. This is who God has shown grace to. These are the evidences of that grace. How does it end? Look at verse 10. What's the final beatitude? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is the final descriptor of the one that God has blessed. It's one who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Isn't it amazing? Those who come to God with no righteousness poor in spirit, in the end, are being persecuted for righteousness as they enter into the world with the gospel of peace. And again, this is not just some people. These Beatitudes describe all of us just as there are not only some Christians who mourn over their sin. There are not only some Christians who are persecuted. Persecution is a mark of those whom God has blessed. And in a sense, as we see this progression, this is the culmination of a life that has been transformed from the inside out. Persecution will come to all who follow Christ. And here's the thing, when it does come, it will test our faith. It will test our faith. Later in Matthew, we're going to read the parable of the sower. 
Jesus talked about different seeds that fall on the ground and, and, and some don't take root at all. Some take root and flourish and then they fall away. Some bear fruit. But he talks about one seed that at first looks like it's, it's fruitful. But then he says that, that when persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. At the first sign of difficulty, that person falls away. Listen, what's going to happen in our country when we, we, we've enjoyed peace? We have so many people that profess Christ, we've enjoyed peace, but what's going to happen when persecution comes? Many will fall away. Persecution is going to test and it's going to expose who truly is rooted in the word of Christ. Persecution will test us. The book of Hebrews was written to a church that was considering going back to Judaism because of persecution. It's written to, to Christians who, who had given their lives to Christ, but, but they were being persecuted and being put in jail and being plundered. And they're saying, maybe we should be, go back to, to just being Jews again because, because life was good then. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't turn back to that religion. Don't turn back to that way of life because Jesus has come and Jesus is better and you need to persevere through persecution. But do you see, persecution will test us. In our day, already we see Christian institutions who are compromising biblical teaching to avoid the consequences. That's happening right now. Persecution is testing and it's exposing. And when those gathering storm clouds come, what will happen to us? Who will we be then? Because of this reality, Jesus expounds on this final beatitude. All the others, he, he just stated it and went forward. But here, as he concludes with this final beatitude about persecution, he, he begins to talk directly to the disciples about it and to encourage them and to, and to motivate them. What he wants to do is he wants to tell his disciples why they should keep following him when persecution comes. No one, no one wants to be persecuted. No one wants to sign up for a life of persecution. Why would I follow Christ if it means I'm going to be persecuted? And Jesus is going to tell us why. In this passage, he gives us three reasons why we should keep following Christ when we're persecuted. Let's read the whole passage for this morning, verses 10 through 16. Verses 10 through 16. And we're going to see in this passage three reasons why we should keep following Christ when we are persecuted. Verses 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Persecution is coming, but when it comes, here are three reasons that we should keep following Christ when we are persecuted. First, for our own eternal joy. For our own eternal joy. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. Happy are the persecuted. Unshakably happy are the persecuted. Why? Here's why. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is how the Beatitudes began. 
the poor in spirit, they're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same blessing comes here in the last beatitude. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is a mark of your heavenly citizenship. When you are persecuted for righteousness sake, that is a mark, that's, that's, that's a ID card for you that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. That, that, that is God's way of authenticating that you are a citizen in His coming kingdom, His coming perfect world. You belong to that world. And, and persecution is a mark of that. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also says this, your reward is great in heaven. He turns to the disciples. He says, I'm not just talking generally. I'm talking about you guys. Blessed are you when you're reviled. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice. Be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. You're not just going to be subclass citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're going to have a great reward when you get there. What is that award? What is that reward that awaits those who are persecuted? What's the reward that awaits us in heaven? It's, it, it's God himself. It's communion with our creator. It's fellowship with our father. It, it is intimacy with Christ. Jesus himself is our reward. The, the reward of heaven is the presence of God with his people. It's not mansions, it's not streets of gold, it's not a big, big house and a big, big yard where we can play football, right? It's, it's God. Jesus is our reward that is great in heaven. Persecution assures us that that award, that, that reward awaits us. And then he says this, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, so listen, we're not the first ones that will experience persecution. Persecution aligns us with the people of God throughout redemptive history. The prophets have always been persecuted. The apostles were persecuted if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see persecution has been a mark of the true people of God throughout history. And when we're persecuted, that, that aligns us with that people. Blessed are those who are persecuted. They are part of the people of God. They're citizens of heaven. They have a great reward in heaven waiting for them, which is nothing less than God himself. And this is why Jesus can say, rejoice and be glad. When you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad. Be happy. Shout for joy when persecution comes. How is, how is that really possible? I mean, how is it possible to be persecuted and to be happy? How is it possible to, to be reviled and to rejoice? Is this just pie-in-the-sky theology that I'm spouting here? No, it's possible in Jesus Christ. It's possible because of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus is the supreme example of someone who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Ben read it earlier in communion. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was sinless, and yet he was crucified. He's the supreme example of someone who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. He lived in perfect righteousness, and yet was crucified. But, but listen, he's, he's more than an example. If Jesus was just an example, then, then that does nothing for us. We just, we, we just say, well, that's great, but we, we're not Jesus. No, but he's more than an example. He's the Savior 
He gave himself up to his persecutors. You know, in John we read that Jesus went out to meet them in the garden. He went to them. And he said, they said, where's Jesus? He said, I am knocking them all to the ground. He knocks them to the ground by claiming the name of God in that moment. And they get back up and he says, here, take me. He gave himself up to his persecutors. He, he died on the cross. Why? Because he was laying his life down willingly for the sins of his people. When Jesus was persecuted for righteousness, like he did it as a willing sacrifice for our sins against God. He died for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So he's not just an example. He's a savior. And then on the third day, we, we celebrated this last week, on the third day, he rose from the dead with a glorified, immortal, and physical body. A real, physical, but glorified body. So his death for our sins and then his glorious resurrection, these things assure us that when he says, blessed are the persecuted, that that's a true statement. That's true because Jesus died and rose again. That's the only way that's true. Persecution is only a blessing if Jesus has died for our sins and risen again. And he has. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is coming again. And all who believe in him, all who repent of their sins and believe in him, will receive that glorified resurrection body, be citizens in his heavenly kingdom, have the reward of communing with Christ himself, and be part of the people of God forever because he died and rose again. If you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, then this morning, do that. Right now, call out to God and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I know that I can't save myself because I'm a spiritual beggar. And so I come to you and I, and I look to the cross and I say, thank you that you sent your son to die for my sins. I trust in him. I trust that he rose again. I, I want fellowship with you, God. I want to be one of your people and I trust in Jesus to save me. Do that this morning. Do that right now if you do not know the Lord and you will be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And when persecution comes on that account, you can rejoice and be glad because the reward is great in heaven. This is the primary reason that the persecuted are blessed because it's for our eternal joy. So when persecution comes, persevere in following Christ for your own eternal joy. Second, persevere when persecution comes for the good of others. For the good of others. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, in our day and age, we tend to use salt primarily to flavor our food. right? But back then, there's no refrigerators. There's no freezers. So you know what? They put salt on a lot of things. And so when we read salt, we're not probably thinking primarily about taste. That would be like me having some beef jerky and saying, here, pass the salt. I need some salt in my jerky. No, it's got a lot of salt in it already. They didn't need salt for flavor. What did they use salt for? Well, there are two uses that come to the, to the foreground when we think about what Jesus is saying here. First, they used salt to purify. Salt would purify uh, things that, that had bacteria in it and, 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 and things that would have been harmful to the body. Salt purified these things. And so Jesus, when he says you were the salt of the earth, he's speaking about, about us having a purifying effect in this world. Think, think about this. Um, just a few examples that, from history. William Wilberforce and the end of the slave trade in England. That was a Christian who, based on his Christian convictions, 
stood for righteousness, called for righteousness, and through his labors saw the eradication of a great evil. That's an example of a Christian purifying this earth, purifying this culture. William Carey was a missionary to India. When he went there, the, the, the practice of, of sati, which is that they, when, when a, a husband died, they would, the, the, the widow would be burned alive on his funeral pyre. William Carey came with the gospel, but he also came and he eradicated this. He taught them. He, he, he showed them this is not good. This is not righteous. This is, this is evil. And through his influence, that was eradicated in India. So these are just two examples, two major examples in history of how Christians purify this world. By living righteously, by following Christ, God uses them in culture, in communities, to, to purify what's there, purify evil that's there. It's not just purification, though. It's, it's preservation. Salt also preserves. Salt keeps things from spoiling. And that is the case with believers in this world. Think about this in our own day and age. Examples of how believers are preserving our own society. Think about abortion. Think about marriage. Think about man and woman. What, what would happen if you removed believers? All, all the believers from this country. Th- things, would, things would go south very fast, Right? There's, there's a preserving influence that's happening through the church, keeping things from going the direction they're going as quickly as they might. Now, it doesn't mean that things will never spoil, right? There is a point where God gives cultures over to their sins, like Romans 1 talks about. But God also uses his church to preserve cultures from those sins. Salt purifies, salt preserves. What we're talking about is common grace, we're talking about common grace. Followers of Christ are instruments of God's common grace in this world. God uses us to bless this world. God has shown us in his word what is righteous. And, and here's the thing, what is righteous is what works. Because this is God's world, then what is righteous is what is actually best. And so when we stand for what's righteous in our culture, we are also standing for what is best. When we stand for... for uh, Man and woman in one lifelong marriage, we are standing for what is truly best for all people because this is God's world that he made and God's design. So when we stand for those things, we may be persecuted for it, but we're blessing them. We are, we are saying this, this, this is for your good because God has spoken and this is his world. So we are instruments of God's common grace in this world. But look what Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste... Some versions might say if salt has lost its saltiness. The, the, the word is hard to translate, but it essentially means if it's, if it's lost its, its potency, if it's lost its effectiveness as a preserver, as a purifier, then how can you restore it? You can't. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So why is Jesus saying this? He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, what is it good for anymore? Jesus is saying this, again, in the context of persecution. In the context of persecution, salt that's no longer salty is like a follower of Christ who's not following Christ anymore. That's that's the metaphor. It's a follow. Someone says, I believe in Christ, I'm a disciple of Christ, but I'm not going to follow him, and I'm not going to stand for him, I'm not going to live for him. That is salt that has lost its saltiness in this world. And Jesus says that someone who privatizes their discipleship like that has lost their usefulness to the world. 
someone who will not stand for righteousness, someone who will not stand for Christ, someone who will not preach the true full gospel to the world because the persecution is no longer useful to this world. So an application here, don't lose your saltiness. In other words, don't privatize your discipleship. There's this myth out there that you can be a Christian to yourself. You can be a disciple to yourself. It's just just something that's between you and God. You are a Christian between you and God, and you're not going to put that on anyone else. You're not going to speak in anyone else's life about about their spirituality, about their religion, about their relationship with God. This This is a private thing. And Jesus is saying that that's a myth. It's a myth that someone can be a follower of Christ and keep it private. A private disciple is not a true disciple. Someone who says they're a follower of Christ and doesn't follow Christ is like salt that's lost its taste. It's not good for anything except to be trampled underfoot. And so if you're going to be a follower of Christ, be a follower of Christ in this world. Stand for righteousness. Speak the truth. Preach the gospel. And let God use you as common grace as he sees fit, to purify and preserve the people that are lost in this world. So we should not shrink back from persecution. One, for our own eternal joy. Two, for the good of others. But three, and ultimately for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. He says, you are a city on a hill. He says, you are a lamp in a house. These these pictures of light shining into darkness. He says, this is who you are, disciples. This is who you are as as my people. Followers of Christ are lights that enable the lost to see themselves accurately from God's perspective. You know, lost people don't know they're lost. They're, They're ignorant of that. They don't don't know that they need a Savior. They don't understand these things. They are blind to their condition. Followers of Christ shine light into that darkness through the way we live and through the words we speak. And it enables the lost to see what's really going on. It enables them to see themselves in God's world. That is who we are, a shining light in a dark and dying world. Like we just said earlier. This is who we are. Now, why would someone try to hide their light? I mean, we all grew up with the song, right? Like, this little light of mine. Why would we hide it? Like, we said, I'm not going to hide it, but we do. Why, why would someone hide their light? And again, the context is so important. It's persecution. We'd hide it because we don't want to be persecuted for our faith. Why would a city on a hill go dark to, to protect itself from, from someone that would see it and attack it? We hide our light because we are afraid of persecution. John 3 tells us this, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Sinners hate the light. They hate being exposed. And when they're exposed in their sin because they love their sin, they're going to hate the light and they're going to attack those who bring that light. We're tempted to hide our light because we're afraid of the hostility that may come if we shine. Listen, though hostility will come, and though when it does come, we should rejoice and be blessed. We need to understand something that Jesus does here. Though hostility will come, that's not all that will happen. Persecution is not the whole picture when we shine our light. Jesus says here, 
that it won't just be hostility, but we are also going to discover hunger for God. We're going to discover God working. We're going to see people change. Look what he says at the end of the verse. Verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So yes, when you let your light shine before others, when you live as a follower of Christ in this world, many will hate you. Many will persecute you. But some won't. Some will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying some, through the way you live as a follower of Christ, will be transformed themselves into worshipers of Christ. They will give glory to your Father in heaven. What does it mean to give glory to God? It means that you worship Him. You give Him honor. You give Him praise. You, you boast in Him. You become a worshiper. He says that's going to happen when you let your light shine. Yes, there will be hostility. Yes, there will be people who persecute. Yes, they, they will revile you. But some in that larger persecution, some will see it and God will use it to draw them to Christ and to create in them a heart that worships Him for His grace. And this is all for the glory of God. This is our heart in it. Not just that they would be saved, that we rejoice in that good, but that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We who have experienced the blessings of God, the glorious grace of God, our ultimate fundamental driving desire is that God would be glorified. We sang it earlier, to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace. This is what we live for. This is what we want to see. And here's what Jesus is saying. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and they will join you in glorifying the Father. As God is gracious to us and blesses us and makes his face shine upon us and gives us peace, we sing that, that let, let all the nations be glad in him. We want to see more and more people worshiping God and that will only happen as we let our light shine and as, yes, we receive hostility, but in that hostility we also see God transforming lives to be worshipers of him. So let your light shine before others. Live as a follower of Christ. Live righteously. Live on his account. Preach the gospel. Speak the truth. Live for righteousness. For the glory of God. We'll talk about Peter for a moment. The apostle Peter. You know, before the cross, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times. What did Peter say? He said, I will never deny you. I, I, I would never do that. If all fall away, I will not fall away. Listen, I don't want any one of us this morning to have that mentality right now. None of us should say right now, listen, when it comes, I'll never deny Christ. Yeah, bring it on. I'm game. No, 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 we shouldn't be saying that. That's exactly, that, that was the mentality of Peter. Right? We should not be looking at ourselves and saying, well, well that's, when persecution comes, I'm going to pass the test. I would never deny Christ. Because you know what happened? That was before the cross. You know what happened at the cross when Jesus was arrested? Peter said, I do, I do not know the man. I don't even know him. He denied him three times. That confidence gave way completely to a complete denial of Jesus. And yet Jesus died for Peter's sin. 
Jesus rose again from the dead with a glorified, physical, immortal body. And Jesus came to Peter and he forgave him and he restored him and he commissioned him. And in Acts chapter 5, Peter is leading the early church. Peter is preaching Christ in Jerusalem in the same place where Jesus had been crucified. He is arrested with other apostles. They are beaten. This is what we read. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing. Peter's rejoicing that he was beaten for the name of Christ. And they said, don't, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And look what they did every day in the temple and from house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They said, no way are we stopping. Jesus is the Savior. He died for our sins. He rose again. He's coming again. All who believe in him have a reward in heaven with him forever and ever. And so do what you want to my body. I'm going to rejoice and be happy and be glad here and now. And I'm going to pre keep preaching Christ everywhere and letting my light shine and being salt and light in this world until he returns or takes me home to be with him. This is Peter after the cross. And what's the point? What's the, what point am I making? If, if we're going to be faithful when persecution comes, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We must keep our eyes fixed on our once crucified and now resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Do not put your eyes on yourself. Do not trust in yourself in that moment, but put your eyes on him. Remember what he did for you. Remember that he's risen. Remember that he's returning. And then follow him and be salt and let your light shine. And when persecution comes, church, know that our reward is great in heaven. It's Jesus himself.